Hello, and welcome back to Free of Charge, Conversations in Canadian Nuclear Science, a podcast from Canada's premier nuclear science and technology organization, Canadian Nuclear Laboratories, or CNL for short. I'm your host, Larkin Moskrop, a program manager for CNL's Advanced Reactors Directorate, and today we're going to be exploring how radioactive elements move through aquatic ecosystems. To guide this conversation, I'm going to be speaking with Matt Bond from our Environmental and Waste Technologies branch. Matt is an environmental biologist whose research mainly focuses on better understanding the fate, transport, and effects of radionuclides in the environment. He's particularly interested in understanding how they move through aquatic systems like lakes, rivers, streams, and wetlands. And that's what he's going to be telling us about today. Thank you so much for joining us today, Matt. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So before we dive right into your work assessing how radionuclides move around and affect aquatic environments, I think we should back up a little bit and maybe you can give us some context about why this is important in the first place. Yeah, sure. Okay, so Canada is a tier one nuclear nation. So that means that we have the full spectrum of capabilities in the nuclear industry. So Everything from uh, resource extraction, like uranium mining, through nuclear research and power generation, production of medical isotopes, and a strong regulatory body to sort of guide the country through that process safely. And that's the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission. That's exactly right, yeah. So nuclear is the second largest source of electricity in Canada at about 15% of total generation, uh, behind only hydropower. So... As Canada and the various provinces move towards cleaner sources of electricity, there's been sort of a new spotlight shone on nuclear power as part of that new energy mix of the future. So we're seeing things like refurbishments of large nuclear generating stations, so Darlington, Bruce Power, and there's also a lot of uh, interest and progress being made on the smaller side of nuclear, like small modular reactors. The Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, or CNSC, is our federal regulator for nuclear power and materials here in Canada. Um, So they're responsible for ensuring that people and the environment are protected uh, when it comes to things like licensing or operation of nuclear uh, installations or other related industries in the country. So they are able to carry out this responsibility by having a strong understanding of how different radionuclides interact with our environment. So does your work do both low-level and high-level radionuclides? I'd say like 95% of the stuff that we do in my group is looking at very low, uh, we call it environmental level um, of radionuclides in the environment. So we're talking here things like those radionuclides that occur naturally in the environment or maybe effluents from industrial activities. But we're not... Uh, looking at anything that you might consider high level, like spent nuclear fuel rods or anything like that. Can you give me some examples of what an environmental, would that be like potassium and bananas? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's like the classic example, right? Like potassium and bananas or table salt or something like that. If you take a Geiger counter and you put it up against uh, a box of table salt, it's going to start, you're going to hear some noise there and you're going to be detecting the potassium uh, 40 coming off those the, the box of table salt. So we're talking uh, for the most part levels like that. So 
we actually need uh, here at Chalk River. We've got some very specialized low-level facilities for measuring these uh, levels of radionuclides in the environment. You couldn't measure them just anywhere. So we've actually got a low background facility where we house a lot of our detectors that helps us achieve these very low detection limits. So we're actually able to get real data from our samples. Did we build that the facility, or was yeah. it something special about Chalk River? Okay, so we built it. It's actually really cool. It's housed a little bit off our site, and the intent was to have a very low level. So there's natural radiation all around us, right? There's cosmic rays, there's radiation emitting from the ground, from the rocks, from building materials. So this facility where we house a lot of our detectors was actually built from scavenged shipwrecks. In the late 50s and 1960s, there was global uh, nuclear weapons tests, which sort of deposited a layer of radioactivity around the globe, which could interfere if you're trying to achieve a really low detection limit, that could actually interfere with that ability, right? So even the building materials um, have to be very old trees that were uh, pre that era, so they, they don't contain in any of those radionuclides. So it's a pretty... It's a pretty neat facility, but that's one of the ways we're able to actually get good detection on a lot of the radionuclides that we're studying in the environment. So because Canada is that tier one, meaning that we start with mining, is the way that we look at environmental levels of radionuclides like your research does, does that tie into some of the work we're doing out in, say, the Athabasca Basin in Saskatchewan? That's exactly right. So there's a term for natural radionuclides in the environment. You may have heard it before. It's NORM like the name norm, naturally occurring radioactive materials. So these are things that would exist in the environment even if humans never walked the earth. So for the most part, these are uh, materials deep in the earth's crust and mantle. So there's the uranium and the thorium uh, series of radionuclides that are make up part of the earth. And as they decay, there's a series of daughter products that are throughout our environment. So we do a lot of work looking at these naturally occurring radioactive materials. So some industries like mining or oil and gas uh, bring these naturally occurring radioactive materials from deep in the Earth's crust to the surface. And that's got another kind of swanky um, acronym that we call T-NORM. There's way too many acronyms in the nuclear industry, but T-NORM. <laughs> so technologically enhanced norm. So that's what's happening. You're actually, um, many of these industries that are extracting from deep in the earth that comes to the surface and it's concentrated at, you know, higher levels at the surface here than you would find it in the, in the earth. So we're doing a lot of work looking at the environmental fate and transport and behavior of these uh, T-norm radionuclides in the environment. And one of the ways to do that would be, of course, to uh, look at uranium-rich areas, which we have in Canada, especially in Saskatchewan. And so that becomes a really perfect study location to better understand them. So one of the ones that we're taking a, a really close look at is called polonium-210. Um, what we're looking at is natural polonium-210, which is uh, a decay product of uranium-238, which is, of course, natural uranium, and that is what is being mined in you know around the world, but specifically to our Canadian story here um, in northern Saskatchewan. And so that polonium-210 is a T-norm of the uranium mining? 
Yes, that's exactly right. And it's actually a pretty interesting radionuclide. There's not a ton of information on it for a few reasons. So it's very volatile. So that means that it um, sort of it becomes very difficult to measure. Okay. Um, it just kind of can disappear in your sample if it's heated or under pressure or something like that. Most radionuclides, there is a stable element of that nuclide. Right. And a lot of the time to understand how that element or radionuclide uh, behaves in the environment, you would try to understand how the stable element behaves in the environment. It's going to react or behave very similarly to the radioisotope of that same element. Okay. There is no stable element of polonium. So that becomes a little bit tricky. And it's also very short-lived. So it's got a 138-day half-life. So in the grand scheme of things, it's, it decays very quickly. So there's a little bit of literature on concentrations in the marine environment, but very little in freshwater environments. And that's what we're looking at here in Canada. Ultimately, we're looking at this radioisotope to uh, improve our not only our understanding of it, but also to improve the risk assessment associated with uh, overseeing activities that could result in this T-norm, right? Polonium-210 is hard to measure. Low quantities? Yes, very low, very low levels. And it disappears quickly? Yes. So why polonium-210? Okay, that's a, yeah, that's, it's like you're setting yourself up for some really difficult research. You're right, but it, that's a good question. So it is, in fact, despite the very low levels, it's an alpha-emitting um, radionuclide. So that means it gives off alpha particles, alpha radiation. They can't even make it through a piece of paper. And they do not move very far, but if ingested, if you were to eat it, uh, drink it, or get in a cut or something like that, and it enters your body, that's when there is some health risk associated with that. So levels are very low, but it has the potential to be one of the more toxic substances in the environment. Um, so there's a lot of attention being paid to that and making sure we have a very strong understanding of exactly how it behaves in the environment and you know, where it might accumulate. In Saskatchewan is your main focused area, and polonium-210 is of interest especially because it's an uh, sorry an alpha emitter, and therefore can be damaging for ingestion. So I'm imagining it's because you're looking at the communities and their water up there. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's certainly um, some concerns from communities in the area. So if you've never been to northern Saskatchewan, it's quite remote. Um, it's a, a big land area. There's uh, many different First Nations uh, throughout the area and it's gorgeous. Lakes and rivers. Um, if you like to canoe, it's like paradise there. Um, so we actually partnered up with a local community, the Clearwater River Diné Nation, and they've been really uh, a key partner in facilitating this work and, and uh, it's been really great working with them. Can you tell me a little bit more about that partnership? Yeah, for sure. So back in 2020, uh, one of our collaborators at the University of Ottawa connected us with someone from that community uh, who's got, I'd say, a real special talent to bring people together. 
so this community representative suggested that the best way for us to do this work would be to work with the local school there, really so that we could all learn from one another. And so that's exactly what we did. So last year was our first season of field work in the area. So the summer of 2022. And then we just returned to the area uh, two weeks ago. Um, to conduct more field work with the help of six teenage students and a couple staff from the Clearwater River Denae School. I love bringing in youth to these types of research and getting them in, interested and engaged and wondering about what's going on. So how did that go? How did your field season oh, go? Yeah, absolutely. It was it was excellent. Um, so they helped us right from the very beginning of this project actually develop a sampling plan. And so that was... That was really interesting. We actually administered a community survey sort of about the work and some, uh, really we were looking for some feedback. We had our own experimental design of um, types of lakes that we wanted to sample that, you know, different types of lakes that would help us inform. And within that, they provided a lot of really in interesting information about, um, you know, culturally important lakes mm. in the area, about what maybe their concerns were, and we could add on a little bit of research. So, for example, we did not intend to um, collect groundwater samples from the area, but that we kept hearing concerns about that over and over and over. So we, we were able to add that in. And uh, so now we've got a lot of groundwater data from the area as well. Of course, we're going back to ingestion, right? People drink, mm -hmm. for the most part, uh, well water in that area. Wow, I, I love that. That's really true community and Indigenous engagement. So it's great to hear that you're able to take that into your, your design, your data and research design. So what kind of things are you collecting? So groundwater, obviously surface water, anything else? Yeah, tons of samples. So we try to, for most of our projects, this one included, we try to sample um, pretty much every part of the environment. So we were collecting surface water, groundwater, uh, lake sediment, um, precipitation, um, if we're lucky enough for it to rain while we're there, and then the entire aquatic food web. So algae, uh, plankton in the water. So these are these little invertebrates that live mm -hmm. in the water column and they're food for fish. Invertebrates. So we had uh, all the kids out in with nets and waders um, trying to catch these little bugs in the water, flipping over rocks and using the nets and weed beds to pick up the invertebrate samples. That was awesome. They really loved that. Um, and then fish. So we got a whole bunch of bait fish, little different types of little minnows. Um, sticklebacks and dace and little fish like that and then this year the focus was on the top predator fish so we were getting fish like walleye and northern pike and lake trout and white fish and stuff like that so we're actually able to with all this data now sort of reconstruct the food web and track polonium 210 through the food web which is sort of one of the core uh, research questions here that's really interesting. So you have all this data, you have all these samples, you process them back here at Chalk River? Yeah, that's exactly right. So we get everything on dry ice and pack it in coolers and drop it off at a shipping place and cross our fingers that it arrives back in Chalk River in good order and not a cooler full of mush, which would not be nice. But uh, so for this project, because Polonium-210 is very short-lived, right? Uh, we really need to process and analyze the samples very quickly. So within about one month, we have to have 
all the samples processed in the lab. So that kind of looks like uh, dissect the fish into various components. So all of their their guts, we'd, we'd analyze those separately from their bone, from the actual muscle tissue that humans typically eat uh, mostly. And then we actually uh, blend those up in a blender. It's one of the uh, least glamorous parts of the job. <laughs> it's great having students help with that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then we'd actually do a polonium extraction in the lab. And those would be uh, samples would, uh, polonium would be extracted from each of them. And then they'd go on a alpha detector and then we'd count them. And then we, we end up with a polonium 210 measurement for each one of those samples. So that's what we're working on now. So the goal is to use this data for what? There's sort of two components. One would be there's polonium 210 in, in pretty much everything, in precipitation, in groundwater, you know, in rock and soil and plant everything like that. And one of the interesting things that we found so far is that there's actually a very large variability, polonium-210 levels across Canada. So we're trying to figure out exactly why that is. And we don't have too many results yet at this point, or nothing too conclusive, but we've certainly found that uh, some of the highest levels, now. Remember, these are very low still, but the, some of the higher levels we've seen have actually been from very pristine, like nation, national park type environments, um, mm. and maybe in a stream draining a large wetland or something like that. So there's some uh, unique environmental drivers um, sort of influencing the behavior of polonium-210 that are not necessarily linked to, well, in this case, definitely not linked to human activity. We're looking at the relationships between uh, concentrations we'd see in water and, and what's taken up into the food web. So we can take the same approach with uh, naturally occurring radionuclide or something, you know, you could use the same approach to model effects from something like um, Chernobyl or Fukushima. So these models then allow the CNSC or, or the different licensees to take the data they're collecting in their environmental monitoring and show that they are within the regulatory limits? Yeah, and so it's there's the monitoring component, um, which is definitely important. And you're also able to use this type of, of model to predict what might happen. So you could... If you're able to develop a, a strong understanding and model um, how a radionuclide moves through the environment, you could you could model a theoretical worst case scenario. Like an accident scenario. Yes, exactly. And then you would be able to have a pretty good idea about what the overall impact would be. And and then look at the you know, the results there through a risk assessment lens and determine, you know, at what point might that be an issue. So, you know, when a regulator would be considering a new license or something like that, uh, these models are often considered in that and they would do their own modeling, often using the model parameters that we generate in research like this. So I imagine a lot of the lakes and the bodies of water up in Saskatchewan are smaller, but a lot of our nuclear reactors are on large bodies of water. So have you done any research about larger bodies of water and how nuclear works in them? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Uh, we have, in fact, we just wrapped up a pretty large project looking at uh, radionuclides in the Great Lakes system. 
And it was actually pretty interesting what we found. So as we know, most of our power reactors here in Canada are either on Lake Ontario or Lake Huron. And so what we did is we actually simulated an accident scenario in the Great Lakes um, to basically try to figure out and model where will this suite of radionuclides go through the system, so through space, and also through time. How long will it take to get there um, when you're factoring in things like uptake into the environment and retention and also radioactive decay. So did you simulate an accident from, say, one of the reactors that we currently have, or did you just say, here's suddenly an introduction of radio? Yeah, so we did that, um, the latter, but the part of the project that I was looking after was trying to figure out transfer factors. Um, so really what that means is we're looking at the ratio um, if you were to introduce a suite of radionuclides to one of the lakes as an uh, aquatic deposition or large release, how much of that is going to stay in the water and how much of that is going to get taken up into the food web. Okay, so transferred from the release to the food web. Exactly right. Um, looking at questions like, you know, will these fish be safe to eat, you know? If so, great. If not, how long uh, will it take for that to clear? Uh, questions like that, which are obviously very important. So we looked at, obviously, Ontar Lake Ontario, but you looked at all the Great Lakes. So we looked at all of them except for Lake Michigan. Okay. So we looked at Lake Superior, we looked at Lake Huron, we looked at Lake uh, Erie, and we looked at Lake Ontario. And for each of those lakes, if you looked at a bathymetry map or depth map of each of the lakes, they're kind of in distinct basins, right? So think about Lake Huron, you've kind of got the North Channel, you've got Georgian Bay, and then you've got sort of the Southern Lake Huron. So we, we actually took each of those lakes and we broke them up into different pieces. So when you're building this model where you introduced radionuclides, did you use like real data to build the model? So we, we actually did. Um, now, remember, this is a theoretical release of an accident, right? right? Theoretical simulation. So these radionuclides uh, are not actually present in the water. So what we did is we took the stable element for each of those radionuclides and we measured that. So in each of the basins from four of the Great Lakes, we collected uh, water and sediment, and we also collected uh, everything we could from the food web. So from algae and plankton, up through, uh, you know, crayfish, clams, a whole bunch of different invertebrates, and as many fish species as we could get our hands on. We actually partnered with um, a few provincial and federal agencies who are already out monitoring fish on the Great Lakes, and as luck would have it, they were willing to donate some of these fish to us so that they did their science on. And then when the, you know, when they were done with that fish, they uh, sent it over to us so that we could do our part on them. So what did you find? It was actually quite uh, interesting. What we found was that the underlying geology very much controls uptake of radionuclides into the food web. So when you talk about underlying geology, you mean like what? Yeah, so if you were to uh, open up a geological map of Canada, you would see that the Canadian Shield is basically underlying 
the whole Lake Superior region and the North Channel of Lake Huron. Lake Superior flows into Lake Huron. Downstream of there, so southern Lake Huron, Lake Erie, and Lake Ontario, the geology changes more to sedimentary geology. So you're also getting a lot more agricultural and um, you know development throughout there. And this is important. Um, really, the geology is important because that's driving the dissolved ion concentrations in the water. So really what that means, we're thinking about looking at things like potassium and calcium, um, magnesium, sodium, ions like that that are dissolved in the water. And these are actually the term that we use as metabolic analogs for a number of key radionuclides. So that means if you look at the periodic table, um, calcium is a meta metabolic analog of strontium. So a living thing could be tricked, up, tricked to take up one or the other. So if a, a living thing is looking for calcium to build some bone and there's not a lot of calcium around to be had, they would then take up something like strontium-90 if it was there. So the dissolved ion concentrations for most of the ions I just mentioned are really low on the Canadian Shield, so Lake Superior and the North Channel of Lake Huron. Uh, by the time you get down to Lake Ontario, if you were to follow the Great Lakes downstream, a lot of them are much higher, so like 3 to 20 times higher concentrations in the water. What that means is that in uh, the upper Great Lakes, located on Canadian Shield bedrock, um, the uptake potential of uh, many radionuclides would be a lot higher, where the ion, dissolved ion concentration is very low in the waters compared to uh, the lower Great Lakes, like Lake Erie or Lake Ontario, where those waters are much higher in those dissolved ions and uh, living things like fish and invertebrates would be much less likely to take up those uh, radionuclides if they were to encounter them. So earlier you mentioned that polonium-210 has a huge variety, uh, variability, sorry, across Canada. Do you think it's related to the geology too, just like this simulated accident stuff you did with the Great Lakes? Yeah, that's, that is one of the things that we're looking at very closely. Um, so back to the polonium-210 story, we, along with uh, doing that measurement on all of our samples, we, we do a huge number of other analyses. So we get all the dissolved ion concentrations in the waters and we look at the whole suite of trace elements in all those locations. We're looking at, you know, within a certain watershed, how much, what percentage of that is forested or what mm. percentage of that is wetland or what percentage of that is pavement. Things like that can also have a big effect. Um, so then we take all that data and we do some um, fancy statistics. And usually there's a, you know, environmental data is messy and yeah. it's chaotic. And it's, you know, if you're talking to like a, an engineer sometimes, you know, engineering data is usually very clear. If you do this, this is probably going to happen, right? Environmental data sets are all over the place. So that means we usually need a very large sample set. Um, a lot of data there and using some statistics, usually we can, if there's a certain driver, right, like a uh, calcium or potassium in the water or one of those watershed scale things um, really driving the uptake of a radionuclide, 
then we'll be able to tease that out uh, mathematically and figure out what the real important drivers are in in uh, better understanding the uptake. So this work that you've done with the Great Lakes and then also with your polonium-210, it really helps the CNSC develop these regulatory models or do they use that information to help understand releases and accident scenarios? Yeah, so I'd say it helps everybody um, involved in the process. So uh, what we try to do is make this data um, you know, scientifically sound and available for anyone to use that needs it. So that could be a regulator, it could be a proponent who's doing, trying to do their own risk assessment, it could be the public who's trying to better understand what's going on. Um, so really that's what we're trying to do. Ultimately, um, I see the, the end use of many of these being in sort of regulatory models or risk assessment models, but but we're trying to just, uh, you know, generate good science and put that out for uptake, however it can uh, be best used. Well, that's a great way to end. Thank you so much, Matt, for your time today. And um, I, I think that, you know, the work that we do as environmental scientists is so important to, to connect with communities, but also to build relationships and to really understand what's happening in the ecosystem that we exist in, not just at station by station, but kind of across Canada. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Thank you for listening to another episode of Free of Charge, Conversations in Canadian Nuclear Science. This podcast is produced by Canadian Nuclear Laboratories, Canada's premier nuclear science and technology organization. To learn more about us, you can visit our website at www.cnl.ca or follow us on social media. Until next time.